The Astros reach the pinnacle of baseball as they win their second World Series in the past six years. A dynasty, you say? Let the free agent frenzy begin as the Mets sign their closer to a record-breaking contract. NFL Week 9 stumbles along, and I have some not-so-nice things to say about this season as we approach the midway point. Georgia shows Tennessee why they are the defending champs, while Alabama and Clemson, what happened to them, lose, fall in the rankings, and out of the playoff mix. The NBA soap opera, as the Nets burn, had its wildest week to date, with a coach fired, a somewhat controversial hire in the making, and a suspension to Kyrie Irving. The Bruins save face as they sign, then cut bait with a former prospect with a checkered past. And the Penguins are sliding across the ice as they're mired in a long losing streak. Tons of sports talk to catch up on as we usher the first podcast of the month. It's all coming up, but first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Can you believe it? It is November the 7th here in the Northeast. And over the last three days, it feels like it's June. And with a bit of a respite this past week, it's now full steam ahead with the first of two pods in the next three days and beyond. So even though with autumn taking a backseat in the early part of this month, what's not going to take a backseat is how the sports news cycle continues to spin quickly with lots to get into, my sleeves rolled up and ready to bless these airwaves with my expertise as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning Somewhere in the middle or even as early as last Monday, I welcome you guys and gals back. So much to get into here with me being out there on Thursday and having a full week just to regroup, get myself focused as we now turn our page from the baseball season. And that's where we're going to start. We're going to put the World Series to rest, do a little bit of catching up, and then praise the Astros in the process. Also take a look at the Phillies and in particular what their manager did. I'll get to that in a minute. But you have to admit that even after two tries 
2019 and 2021 and after being down 2-1 in the World Series to the Phillies after a 5-home run barrage and a 7-0 shutout in Game 3. I don't know what it was, but the championship medal, granted that it was 5 years prior to that, and with only 5 of those guys that are left over from the championship season of 2017 when they beat the Dodgers, it somehow came to roost where in Game 4, as pivotal as that was, they had an opportunity over the course of those next 3 games, not only to win in no-hit fashion, not only to have a World Series win for a future Hall of Famer in Justin Verlander, and then in a dramatic setting where Rob Thompson, in the first of two bad moves, took out his starter a bit too soon and it cost him in a Game 6 to where the Houston Astros are now your 2022 World Series champions. And when we look back at that Game 3 to where the Phillies jumped all over Lance McCullers Jr., a lot of people thought that he was tipping pitches based on his leg kick from the slider to the changeup. And we all know he's going to throw a ton of off-speed stuff. I believe he throws 20% fastballs. So you already know pretty much what's coming. It's just a matter of what you're going to see from an arm slot, what you're going to see from that leg kick. As you saw there where Bryce Harper hit the home run to start the home run brigade. And then he brought Alec Baum over to the dugout where he whispered something in his ear about his delivery. And then sure enough... Baum took him deep into the night. And then you have a scenario where Brandon Marsh followed up in the fifth inning with Kyle Schwarber and also Reese Hoskins taking McCullers deep. And Philadelphia is flying high, riding high to the tune of a 7-0 victory. And you're thinking that the Phillies have a very good shot to come out of at least Philadelphia with a 3-2 series lead. I'm sure a lot of people were probably thinking sweep even with the next night, Aaron Nola being pushed up in the rotation because of the rainout on Monday. So he had full rest going into game four. And even with the Astros pitching Christian Javier, I'm sure a lot of people thought that if Nola were to get that win to put his team up three games to one where Justin Verlander, who has not won a World Series game, despite the lovely resume that he has, to where in an elimination setting, and not only that, to bring his team back to Houston with all of his World Series foibles, it would have made for great theater. But as it was, 5 nothing was your final. A combined no-hitter where Javier threw six innings, 97 pitches, and three other relievers chipped in to put the Phillies away for the night and keep their bats silent to where they didn't produce a hit. And I get it, a lot of people are going to look at that as a good achievement, and it is. And it goes into the record books as a no-hitter. But it doesn't carry the same weight as if Javier pitched a complete nine-inning no-hit game. And you already knew by the sixth inning with him at 97 pitches, he wasn't going to be anywhere close to completing that game. But for those who want to call it a true no-hitter, it's not. Yes, again, it is a no-hitter. But where we really raise the stakes to the point where a pitcher goes the full nine innings and it becomes deep into the record books, especially in a World Series where we've only seen it once with Don Larson back in 1956 who threw a perfect game against the Brooklyn Dodgers. But this, with four pitchers total, does not have the same feel. So let me get to one of two bad moves by Rob Thompson here in this Game 4, which pretty much set the tone for, I'm not going to say the rest of the series, but for what happened later on in the series. Now the first move is debatable. 
I will put that out there. But when you have Aaron Nola, who is one of your main starters, he and Zach Wheeler, of course, and granted that he got himself into trouble, he was into the fifth inning and had given up seven hits, including three straight hits to start off that inning. And I understand that Rob Thompson is going to look at the iPad and is going to take a look at all the analytics to say that we have to put in the lefty, Jose Alvarado, to face Jordan Alvarez in this spot. Even though, as we've seen in the past, where some of these relievers come in in the middle of an inning, and especially in a situation where it's no score, and it's bases loaded with one out to the tune, or excuse me, no out, I take that back, and then you have a scenario where the pitcher's going to grip the ball a little bit tighter, he's not going to be as focused as if he came in during a clean inning, and then what happens? Alvarado plunks Alvarez, run scores, before you know it, Bregman takes a ball deep into the outfield for a double, sacrifice fly, RBI hit, 5 nothing. good night, the lights, the game is over. You could say, leave in Nola, who is one of your stud pitchers, to see if he can get out of that. Maybe he can induce a double play ball, and I get it. Righty, lefty, third time around the lineup, you want to make sure that you have a good matchup to where you have a power arm go up against a power bat. But in this case... People could say it's the ultimate second guess, but that's why he's a starting pitcher for a reason. It's because he's been able to fight out of jams like that pretty much since he's been in grade school. And for your pitcher to not get out of there or at least to show that he cannot fight through that, maybe he does give up a run, maybe two. But it seemed as if once Alvarez was hit, it opened up the floodgates. And there you have a situation where the Phillies... No hit. A lot of the steam that was in the ballpark the night before, the air was let out of the balloon. And then that segues into a game five where Verlander doesn't have as much pressure as he would have if they were down 3-1. And as it was, there was still a lot of pressure and it was still very intriguing to see whether or not Verlander was going to take his team home, whether it was going to be a victory or no decision. But as long as he wasn't on the losing side of the ledger or got bombed early and did not prove his medal, and prove his Hall of Fame worth in the biggest start of his career. And as it was, it was tooth and nail, even with the Astros getting a run early and then giving up the home run to Kyle Schwarber there in the bottom of the first, and you kind of thought, whoop, let's see what's going to happen here with Verlander. But he fought tooth and nail. He gutted out a five inning, which is, for Verlander, not what you'd want to see, But that last at-bat where he gave up a double in the fifth inning to Bryce Harper and then the battle with Nick Castellanos to where Castellanos flew out meekly to left field and leaving, I believe, at 94 pitches. You knew that Verlander's work was done and it was just a matter of that bullpen who has been stout and stellar throughout this entire postseason was able to pick him up. You got a run there later in the eighth inning by a home run from the... Future World Series MVP, because of course we're only in Game 5 at the moment, and a one Jeremy Pena, and I'll talk about him in a minute. But the Astros were able to take a Game 5 to go back home, and we've seen this movie before, to where the Astros had a 3-2 series lead, going back home to see if they could ice the championship, and we saw it slip through their hands in 2019 when the Washington Nationals As you saw, all the games were won by the road team. 
And I'm sure that may have played a little bit in the back of the veteran core, whether your name is Yuli Gurriel, who did not play in Game 6 because he had a bad knee, or Alex Bregman, of course, Jose Altuve, we talked about Verlander. That core right there knows, and I'm sure maybe they whispered a word or two to say, hey guys, let's cap this off right here. We do not want a Game 7. We do not want to give any guests into that Philly tank. Let's cap this off right here. We could celebrate and exhale for the rest of the fall and into the winter. And as it was, the game was taking similar shape to Game 4 as it was no score going into the 6th inning, whereas in the 4th game, it was no score going into the 5th. Kyle Schwarber hits the home run to break the snide and put the Phillies on top. And then now let's get to Rob Thompson, Part 2. And this one, to me, was indefensible. I get it, a lot of people going to say about the matchups. A lot of people are going to say he had to go to him there. That Wheeler seemed to be coming apart. First and third, one out. Wheeler was pitching fine up until that point. He only threw 70 pitches. And again, these are starting pitchers for a reason. We understand it's baseball in 2022. I get that. And whose fault this is? Is it all on Thompson? I don't think so. I would think that this is a collaborative effort with the front office and telling what the best matchup is going to be as you get to the middle of the game and obviously to the end of the game and what they felt best as we saw in game four, bringing in Alvarado to take out the starter to face Alvarez to where Alvarez gets plunked and a run comes home. And then now with Wheeler coming out of the game and he did say in the post game that he was shocked, he was surprised, he was still pretty much in good stead knowing that, all right, a little bit of a jam, but he's at 70 pitches He was throwing about 96-97 on the gun. So he wasn't slowing down in the least. So what happens? You bring in Alvarado, not in a clean inning. He faces Alvarez again. And what happens? He hits a ball over the batter's eye and it probably landed somewhere at the Oklahoma-Texas state line. And that's pretty much your game, number six, World Series. And the confetti, the banner will be raised next year and the parade will take place later on this morning or even into the afternoon in downtown Houston to celebrate another World Series title. And for Thompson to pull his pitcher at that point, and I get it that you're going to look at the iPad as opposed to the eye test, but it wasn't as if Wheeler was laboring. And for those who think that, oh, you have to go with the matchup there, you have to make sure that you bring in a lefty, or you have to make sure that, no! Zach Wheeler, who's Had a very good postseason. He's had his moments though where he has not pitched well but it's not as if by him going out there that he was getting lit up throughout the whole park. And for Thompson, I don't want to call it a rookie managing mistake. You can, but I think this is also an indictment on the front office and telling him what to do. And instead of Thompson saying, well, if we get in this scenario again, do we have to go to Alvarado? Wheeler is our horse. Wheeler is our guy who brought us here to this point. Can we at least see what we could get? And it's not as if Alvarez was hitting the ball off the cup co- or hitting the cover off the ball. Alvarez, who had a great DS, a not so good championship series, and the World Series was eh. And here it was, you bring in Alvarado, and again, this isn't a second guess. This move to me was indefensible. You want to look back to game four and say, all right, did you have to bring him in? With Nola, who was laboring there a little bit, even though he's your starting pitcher, and I believe he threw at that point. I want to say he was at 67 pitches. So the pitches isn't even a big deal when you think about it. 
But if you want to debate that one, fine. This one to me, uh uh-uh. No way. Leave Wheel in the game. He's your one guy that you know that could try to get out of it. He's not going to try to pitch around Alvarez. I understand Bregman's coming up. So you're definitely picking your poison there. But I just hated that move. And before the ball went over the fence. So that's what the Philly fan base is going to have to think about as they are eating their Thanksgiving dinner, getting ready to unwrap Christmas gifts. And when the ball drops for New Year's and until spring training, they're going to have to think about this long and hard as well as the manager. Because we've seen this time after time after time and we could only go back two years to Scott Kazmir where Kevin Cash pulled him out of the game because it's third time around the lineup. And then what happened? The Dodgers scored three runs. They win a World Series and away you go. This is after, I said, Scott Kazmir. My apologies. He's 2.0. Blake Snell. That's how much I have Kazmir and Snell. They're, to me, intertwined with one another. How Blake Snell was pitching a no-hitter up until that point. And then the wheels fell off when the Tampa Bay bullpen came into the game. And there you have it. There is your World Series in a nutshell. And I know the Philly fan, they were flying high after Game 3 and thinking that they had a great shot to win a World Series. And they did. And you can look at what Thompson did in Game 4. You can look at the bats not waking up. And a lot of it had to do with the bats. But who knows? If it was one nothing, even 2 nothing there, maybe the offense would have a little bit of life. But when five runs comes across the board, and not to say they gave up, I'm not going to go that far, but your mindset is going to be a lot different where it's 2 nothing or one nothing, where you need a bloop and a blast as opposed to 5 nothing, where you know you got to get a ton of runners on base and try to pass it off to the next guy to see if you can get the tying run and just chip away as the game moves forward. As I mentioned earlier, Jeremy Pena, not only was your league championship series MVP, but he's also your World Series MVP. What a postseason this kid had. And that in itself is Carlos Correa who? Correa goes, you put in Pena, and the guy is not only a star, but who knows what kind of player he's going to be where he may even be a budding superstar. So congratulations to him. And of course, congratulations to Dusty Baker. We've talked about his trials and tribulations as a manager throughout all these years. Think about it. The past couple of decades, going back 20 years, game five against the, excuse me, game six against the Angels where they had a 3-2 series lead and a 5-0 lead in the bottom of the seventh and he goes and gets Russ Ortiz, his starting pitcher, actually told Ortiz to keep the ball because it's going to be a memento for where we win this World Series and how you pitched us to win that elusive World Series title for that franchise dating back to the New York Giants. And what happened there? They lose game six and eventually game seven. A year later, as a member of the Cubs, the Bartman game, left field line, we know what happened then. Later on, as manager of the Reds, had a 2-0 series lead in the division series against the San Francisco Giants where he had three games in his ballpark and it got swept in out of the postseason. Two postseasons in Washington when he lost to the Dodgers and Cubs in the division series. All you have to do is look back to last year, losing to the Braves in the World Series, and then now he finally makes it to the mountaintop as a manager, in all likelihood, going to the Hall of Fame. He has more than 2,000 wins as a manager, has made it to plenty of postseasons, obviously plenty of World Series, and now he'll finally get his World Series ring next year. And who knows 
if he rides off into the sunset as into retirement, finally being that champion in probably the best way he could possibly go is leave by way of a World Series victory. And if you think that this team is a dynasty, please, guess again. Has this been a great run going back to even 2015? Because they made it into the wild card round, they lost to Kansas City, and they lost to Kansas City in brutal fashion. They had a five-run lead, I believe, in the eighth inning in game four, down 2-1 to the Royals, and then the Royals came back and won. And they may have been, and not off the top of my head, they may have been up 2-1 in the series, and then the Royals came back in that ninth inning, or in that latter part of the game, and then they won in five before, that was the year where, of course, the Royals beat the Mets in the World Series. But the 2017 World Series run, as we know, four World Series appearances in the last six years, two World Series titles, I'm sorry, Two championships in six years is not a dynasty. Is this a great run? 100%. Without question. A dynasty? Hell no. People want to throw that word around as if it's Halloween candy. But when we think dynasty, it pales in comparison to the Yankees dynasty of the 90s when they won four and five years in three straight. We could talk about the 70s A's that won three in a row in 72, 73, and 74 against the Reds, Mets, and Dodgers. To me, that's a dynasty. At least winning three straight for starters. If you win four in a row and more than that, whether you're the early 80s Islander teams in hockey, the Montreal Canadiens of the 50s and the late 70s, that they both back-to-back. In fact, the Canadiens won five in a row in the late 50s and four in a row in the late 70s leading into the Islanders. Four in a row of that championship run, as we all know, and they drive for five. Forget about the Celtic dynasties in the 50s and 60s when they won eight straight. Those are dynasties. To even call this a dynasty is an insult. And if you want to even go three out of four for the Cowboys in the 90s and three out of four for the Patriots, the first run of the Patriots in the mid-2000s, eh, I'll give you that. I'd rather see three in a row as opposed to three out of four, but okay, with the NFL and free agency, I'll give that to you. But this Astro run is not a dynasty. I'm sorry. Maybe if they win two more back-to-back, you want to say that's three in a row? Even the Warriors, where they made it to five finals and they won three of the five titles. And four of the last eight. You want to call them a dynasty? Borderline. But it's not a full dynasty unless you have that three straight somewhere in that run. And as we know, the Astros do not have that. As for the Phillies... The Magic Carpet Ride ran out of air. The wind gusts, whatever you want to call it. That's how you have to look at it because for whatever the reason, Game 4 took the wind out of that Magic Carpet Ride. And then from that point on, think about it. They didn't hit. They only scored three runs since that five home run barrage that we saw in Game 3. And obviously it's not going to cut it. And I understand that people are going to look at it and say, well, Jay Reels, it doesn't matter if Rob Thompson took out this guy, that guy, they didn't hit. Okay, Understood. But obviously we'll never know whether if the starting pitcher was in both of those scenarios pitching where you only gave up one run or two runs, tops, because the starting pitcher knows how to get out of those jams. They've been, like I said, they've been doing it since Little League. 
And obviously we'll never know that because of the way baseball is being played now, not only here in 2022, but pretty much over the last five, seven, maybe even 10 years. And you have to give it up. It was a great run. Unexpected. It looked like the Phillies were on their way. But as I said before, and I'll say one last time, those two moves in games four and game six are going to be one that the long-suffering Philly, I can't say long-suffering. I mean, they did win a World Series in the century. And have been to three World Series where a lot of other franchises haven't even been the one. But for the Philly sports fan who likes to claim that they are long-suffering and are one of the best sports fans in the country, and give it up, they are, but they don't rank as far as maybe here in New York or Boston or St. Louis when it comes to baseball. I won't talk about all sports. But with that being said, that's going to be one that's going to stick to their ribs throughout the course of this holiday season into next year and once spring training opens in March. And now we can focus on free agency as Aaron Judge and some of the other big players are on the clock, but there's one player who is not on the clock, and that is the one Edwin Diaz, because reports came out last night that the Mets have offered or are going to sign him pending a physical to a five-year, $102 million deal, which is the first nine-figure deal for a closer in the history of the sport. Not only that, he has a no-trade clause. He has an opt-out, which has not been revealed. So I don't know if that opt-out is after two years, three years, whatever it may be. And then also, he has a six-year option on this contract, which I'm sure all of the owners in baseball choked on their kale salads and Sauvignon Blanc last night. Because if you're a Josh Hader... If you're a Emmanuel Classe, if you're Ryan Presley, if you're one of the top closers in the game, you're going to look at that contract to say, hey, I'm worth that much, or I want something close to that. I believe the highest contract for a closer off the top of my head was Aroldis Chapman when he signed with the Yankees a few years back for five years, $85 million. So that was what, $17 million a year? And that was the highest for closer in the sport. So Diaz blows past that, and how could you not if you're the owner, Steve Cohen, with the year that he had? And to me, I will say this. Is it too rich for my blood? I think it is. If you wanted to give him, let's say, four years and $80 million with a an option for a fifth, I get it, no trade clause, which that's going to be sticky. And who knows where that opt-out is? Maybe the opt-out is after year two, which if that's the case, I'll be fine with that. Three years, a little bit risky. And you would think the opt-out's probably either year two or year three. It's not going to be year four, people. It's going to be early on or right at the halfway point of this deal. But the Mets had to do it. They had to get their man. Did they overpay for him? 100%. Because are you going to get the same Edwin Diaz next year, the year after that, and so on? We know he had a killer year. He was by far the best closer in the sport. But for now, that money, and even with... What took place this year and what he did in flushing throughout the course of the regular season, I would still be holding my breath whenever he comes out of that bullpen in a huge spot, whether it's in late September or more importantly in October. And it's not the knock Diaz. Hopefully, whatever happened in the first couple of years here in New York, he's got that past him. It's well in his rearview mirror. And that this year, he has all the confidence in the world to live up to that contract. But boy, The first blown save that he has, again, late September into October, and all I have to say, think about this, people, all I have to say is this name, Max Scherzer. 
for the $43 million that he got this year, when the money was on the line, did he deliver? A big, fat no. That's what I fear here with Diaz. Because he can rack up all the saves he wants from April through mid-September. But the latter part of that month and into the postseason, it's a whole new ballgame. So now we'll get to see what's going to happen here with free agency over the course of the next few weeks. So you know I'll have my finger on the pulse when it comes to that. All right, let's turn my attention now to the NFL because I have some not so glowing things to say about this sport. And I understand that this is going to upset a lot of the NFL fan, the football fan, the fantasy football, the gambler, etc. I don't care who you are because as we're approaching the halfway point of the season, I know a lot of teams have played nine games, but there are teams that have played eight. And to me, I'm not going to wait a week to even bring this up because one week isn't going to change my mind or change this narrative. So I'm just going to blurt it. So once again, to the gambler, to the fantasy football player, to the diehard fan that whether in your basement, your man cave, or in your living room, you're dripping with the shield, your team's regalia, whatever it is. I don't want to hear it. This NFL season, to write this very second as you're listening to this, has been a disaster. And people could say, whoa, Jay Reel's a disaster? That's a little bit too strong. All right, well, let me break it down for you. What has been the signature game of this NFL season so far? Don't tell me Buffalo at Miami. Don't even give me Miami over Baltimore because that was week two and that might as well have been played five months ago. And yes, that was an epic comeback. We know down 21 points, 35-14 fourth quarter, and they scored 28 points to win 42-38, two or six touchdowns, etc. But again, that was week two. I'm sure if I asked you this question before, that wouldn't have been the first game that popped up in your head. But I brought it up because it was a big game, but is it the signature game of the season? Zero. The Chief Bill game. Good game. Yes, some mistakes there by Mahomes at the end. I understand it's not going to live up to anything close to the playoff game in January because the stakes were a lot much higher and it was epic back and forth at the end of the fourth quarter and into overtime. So if it was going to come anything close to that, it would have taken a lot and it was a far cry from that. Yes, probably two of the best teams in the league. I'm sure people in Philadelphia are going to argue that because they're undefeated. But that wasn't a game that you're going to rally around to say, oh yeah, that was the best game of the year so far. So don't give me any of these other games. I don't want to hear the Jets beating the Bills yesterday at home or the Chiefs over the Chargers in week two in the first Amazon game or the Giants beating Green Bay in London. We're seeing Green Bay fall apart as we speak as they're three and six and their season is about to go out to see if it's not already out there to begin with. So when we just look at that from the start and then let's follow it up with the awful roughing the passer penalties which have calmed down here over the last few weeks and I'm sure the NFL and the referees got the memo knowing that they're going to review this in the offseason with the rules and the competition committee more so with the rules committee when it comes to roughing the passer penalties so although that's quieted down but that was a big focal point so far this NFL season and let me not even get into the concussion protocol with Tua what happened there with Teddy Bridgewater and a couple of other scenarios and how they're trying to rewrite that. Not necessarily on the fly, but they pretty much did do so on the fly because now I got my stories mixed up because we know that because of what took place in Miami against the Buffalo Bills, if you want to look at that as one of the signature games of the year, ha, not this guy. 
or what took place four days later in Cincinnati where they had to wheel him off because he was concussed based on what happened there a few days earlier in the Hard Rock Stadium turf. Those are your storylines. So if you're going to tell me that besides the success of Buffalo, notwithstanding yesterday because they did lose to the Jets, Philly being undefeated, and Casey in a not-so-sexy game last night where they had to pull that one out of their rear ends to beat Tennessee with Malik Willis as the quarterback. So you want to tell me something good, intriguing, or fascinating about the first nine weeks of the season? All right, I'm all ears. What can you give me? Zero, my good people. I'm not trying to piss on the NFL. And I'm not doing it just for grins and giggles or just out of spite, etc. This is a fact. And I haven't even mentioned but how bad the Rams have been as the defending Super Bowl champs, how bad the Buccaneers have been, and even with them beating the Rams yesterday at home, it was a game that was obviously not going to go into the vault as one of the greats of the regular season. So what Tampa scored with nine seconds left to win the game where they were down 13-9 heading into that final drive. It was a field goal exhibition for three and a half quarters. So please, if you're going to look at that game as, oh, that was a tooth and nail, or that was a barn burner there at the end, please, spare me. And again, like I mentioned, the Packers are 3-6. and six. So when you have those three teams that were supposed to be the class and at the top of the NFC, nowhere near that, this has been, I don't care what Roger Goodell says, I don't care what NFL fan could get into my ear to say how good this season has been as we're approaching the halfway point. It has been an abomination and give it up to Philly they're the last undefeated team they beat Houston on a Thursday night which by the way I understand it's Amazon Prime so it's not going to have the numbers based on the World Series where obviously it's on over the air TV on Fox but game 5 of the World Series blew the doors off of the Philadelphia Houston game and rightfully so who wants to see the Texans and I understand that people are going to say well let's see if Philadelphia can continue to be undefeated, again, with the Texans. So let's not get crazy. But this NFL season, oh my goodness, wake me up when the postseason begins and let's see which teams make it and which teams don't make it. And as it is right now, you may not even see the Packers there, which would be a blow for the NFL. I don't care how you want to slice it and dice it. So yes, it'd be nice to get new blood in there, whether you're the Jets, whether you're the Giants even, some of these other teams that have played well, so far in this early portion of the year, even the Vikings, as I mentioned last week, can't get too geeked up on them. They beat the Commanders yesterday. All right, now they're going to get into the deep end of the pool. And even with the Bills losing to the Jets yesterday, and I know it's a good win for the Jets and good for them after that terrible loss the week before against New England and the defensive stops there in the fourth quarter and the Bills, it's a road game. Yeah, it's an upset, of course, but that game would have been more of an upset if it was in Orchard Park and not at MetLife. So... The Jets, they bounce back nicely, give it up to them. So they have an early tie-breaking advantage, even though the Bills are at 6-2. and two. They already had their bye with the Jets are still looking forward to their bye. But again, this season has just been lackluster. So I'm not going to wait a week to even think that, all right, maybe as we get into week 10, it's going to get a little bit better. No, it's not. Here's your schedule, and I'll go through it more on Thursday's podcast. But there are only two games of note to really focus on this week. One is Minnesota at Buffalo, where now we're going to see what Minnesota's really made of. 
as they go to Orchard Park. And Stephon Diggs, a former wide receiver of the Vikings, you know he's going to want to stick it to them. And if Minnesota plays well and they hang in there and let's say they lose a 27-24 game, all right, great. If they lose 30-13, to I don't want to hear it. That's not to say they're going to be paper tigers, but I want to see them play on this level with this type of team. So you can forget about the Commanders, you can forget about the Lions, you can forget about all these other teams that they played and beat. And we all know they lost to the Eagles in Week 2. So that's one game that we're definitely going to zero in on. And then the other game is the Sunday night game where you have the Chargers going up the coast to play the Niners. All right, it's a good game, but it's by far a not a five-star or a four-star game. But sadly, it is when you look at the rest of that schedule. And I'm just going to go to the primetime games. Your Thursday night game, Atlanta, Carolina. Oh, put me out the pasture. The Sunday night game, or as I say, the Sunday afternoon 425 window, game of the week, Dallas at Green Bay. All right, you're going to see the Cowboys. Hopefully the weather's chilly. With the way the weather's been, who knows? It's going to be a 50-degree day in Green Bay. You're not going to have the frozen tundra by far if that's the case. But that's not a game that's going to be sexy. But I bet you Green Bay, for whatever reason, they know that that game's going to be their season. And with Dallas coming off of a bye, even though rested, watch Green Bay, for whatever reason, circle the wagons and they go out and put up a good performance to where they beat the Cowboys there at Lambeau. And then your Monday night game, ready for this? Washington and Philadelphia. That, in a nutshell, my friends, is how bad this NFL season has been. To the point where I don't even have winners and losers for you this week. Because I usually go through my winners and losers of the week. For those who have listened to me, and if this is your first time, I usually take a couple of winners and losers. Teams that have risen above whatever scenario to put themselves in good position, whether it's for division, postseason, whatever. And for those who are taking a step back, I can't call the Packers a loser anymore because I feel like I've called the Packers losers here over the last three, four weeks. All right, and they lose to the Lions. If anything, I give the Lions a win because they snapped their losing streak and they beat the Packers at home. But is that really something to jump up and down considering that they've lost, I believe, what, three in a row going into this game? Maybe four in a row? I want to say they were three and two. Maybe they're three and three. I don't even remember. That's how forgettable this Packers season has been. And even with Tampa winning and beating the Rams, oh, well, Tampa, they snapped their little losing streak and now they put themselves in a position where they're tied for first place with Atlanta because they lost yesterday to the Chargers with a last second field goal. So now Tampa has the reins and the control of the NFC South where Tom Brady has compiled 100,000 passing yards regular season and postseason in his career. Woohoo! Oh, stop. Stop! And I can't call the Jets a winner this week beating the Bills because last week they were a loser when they lost to the Patriots where the week before that or two weeks before that I called them a winner beating the Packers in Green Bay. So I have no winners or losers this week. Sorry people. And even when I go through the schedule there is nothing to sink your teeth into. Yes, have there been some games buzzer beaters? All right, the Chargers with the field goal like I mentioned. I talked about the last second touchdown there for the Buccaneers, the Rams, they're going to be out to see all right, the Seahawks have been a nice story. Six and three, Geno Smith. They won yesterday. Wow, big whoop against Arizona in the desert. But do a lot of people think Seattle's going to be a team to reckon with come January when the postseason begins? And who knows, when it's all said and done, it's quite possible that the Niners will take a stranglehold of the division. 
because they already beat them early on this year. And Seattle's going to be a wild card team where they'll get a six or seven seed. They'll have to play off the top of my head. Ugh, who knows? At Dallas or maybe at Philly, I should say. Well, Philly will have a bye. So I take that back. So what are they going to do? They're going to go to Tampa to play in a 4-5 matchup or a 3-6 matchup? Chances all be 4-5 because they're going to be the NFC South. will have the fourth seed. Uh, that just goes to show you how bad this NFL season has been. Do I even need to go deeper into the weeds with this? In fact, I'm going to cut it off, people, because the NFL has given you zero, nothing, and at me all you want. And I'm going to post this on social media later. So I don't care what angle, I don't care what storyline, I don't care what you could produce here over the first nine weeks of this NFL season, even the diest of diehard NFL fans, breaking out the red, white, and blue pom-poms, wearing the shield, everything I said before, from the man cave to the living room, wherever. This season, on a scale of 1 to 10, it's at the bottom rung. Don't give me a 5, it's somewhere in the middle, no. It's probably a 3 at best. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And even with the trade deadline, do I have to go through those trades? There were some good deals. Rokon Smith going to the Ravens will certainly upgrade that defense because Patrick Queen is not the answer. He is not the guy that they drafted in the first round years ago. Uh Uh-uh. So good for the Ravens, who I can't stand. But they made that trade. I was a little puzzled by the Chase Claypool trade. And I understand that he was in the rumor mill that was going to be shipped somewhere. I know the Packers were a team that were interested. And I'm sure that would have been a great fit for Aaron Rodgers. And they did get a second round pick back. I don't know if he fell out of favor with the coach. I understand there may be a little bit of maturity issues that we've seen over the last couple of years. On top of that, he had a few drop passes with the connection between the rookie quarterback, Kenny Pickett, and George Pickens. Maybe that made Chase Claypool expendable. I would have kept him. I understand you get a second round pick back and a good one at that because it's going to be a high two pick. But, all right, they did what they had to do. I know Bradley Chubb going to Miami. Is that going to tip the scales or the balance of power in the AFC? Absolutely not. Although the Dolphins have played well here after that stretch to where they now won three in a row and a good win in Chicago yesterday. I know Justin Fields ran all over the place. 178 yards, the most by a quarterback in a regular season game because Colin Kaepernick has the record in that playoff game against Green Bay back in 2012. But Fields, and he's starting to come around a little bit. Maybe they've tailed the offense a little bit more for him to be more Lamar Jackson than for him to be sitting in the pocket. Is that going to be sustainable long-term? That we're going to have to wait and see. We know the track record of that type of player, even though Lamar Jackson, he's shown and proved that he can do it, but in a big spot in the postseason, that's when it's really going to matter and really going to count. But kudos to Justin Fields and what he's done to resurrect his career here over the last few weeks. But I don't want to hear it, people. I mean, we could talk about all these games yesterday and break it down and... Yeah, it's going to be poof. But I digress. Back to these trades. I know Bradley Chubb, I said tipping the balance, and he signs a five-year, $110 million deal. Now they got the pass rusher that they want, but is that going to be enough to outlast the Kansas Cities of the world, the Buffalo Bills of the world, even maybe the Baltimore Ravens of the world? Granted that they did beat them in week two. The Cincinnati Bengals, who lost to them earlier this year in Cincinnati, Who knows? Remains to be seen. I don't know if that's going to be the case. Bradley Chubb is not the second coming of Lawrence Taylor. He's a very good pass rusher, 100%. But I'm sure when you look at the top pass rushers in the league, 
is Bradley Chubb in the top three or four? His former teammate, who is now proving his worth in Buffalo, been in the league 10, 11 years, you would even argue that Von Miller is better than Bradley Chubb. Let's just go there. TJ Hawkinson to Minnesota, I think that's a good pickup and another weapon for Kirk Cousins. Kadarius Tony to KC. Calvin Ridley goes to Jacksonville and he's not even playing, he's suspended. Naheem Himes, a little bit of a running game to Buffalo from Indianapolis. I mean, this is trade. These are traits that took place six days ago. So to kind of rehash them, and I understand I've gotten into the rabbit hole, so to speak, when it comes to these trades. But we'll see how they shake down. And I understand that the players they even want to push the trade deadline to week ten and week twelve, which would be a lot more intriguing, especially as you get deeper into the season. A la baseball with the trade deadline, the first week of August. I would think the NFL that would bode well for them considering all the transactions and the player movement, which I think was unprecedented because we have seen a lot more player movement over the last five, seven years in the league. But this past year, I don't think this has been anything that you, I, or the diehard football fan has ever seen. So if they move it up a couple more weeks or two week 12, I think that would help them. I mean, as if the NFL needs more publicity and more press to big up the sport that is already impenetrable. And as I say time after time, with the shield, there isn't anything that you could do to go through it. You could ding it. There'll be a few bumps. There'll be a few nicks and some bruises, but it can never, ever be penetrated. A few other quickies in the sport. Daniel Snyder now hires Bank of America to explore the sale of the commanders, he and his wife. What does this mean? Does that mean is he going to sell a majority of his shares to where he becomes a minority owner? He may not have full say, but he's going to have say. Who knows? I can't tell you right now. I'm sure a lot of people are geeked up in that region to think that maybe he's going to sell 100%. My gut's going to tell me he's not going to do that. He'll probably have some control of the team and some say of the team, but I would think there may be a majority owner, whether it's 51-49, who knows, But that, we're going to have to wait and see how this all shakes down, people. Because right now, it's way too early to tell what's in the brain, what's in the mind. And he certainly hasn't come out with any quotes as to, yes, he's giving up full ownership of this team or part minority or part majority, whatever it is. So that, we're going to have to wait until we get to that bridge. Ray Guy, the Hall of Fame punter of the Oakland Raiders, died late last week. I know a lot of kids, especially me, when I look at us trying to emulate punting. Ray Guy was the guy that you tried to do so. And at the age of 72, and I believe he was just enshrined in the Hall of Fame, if I, not last year. I believe he's the 2020 class, and because of COVID, it wasn't until 2021 when he was enshrined, but just sad news there. Dying at the age of 72. And also at the age of 72 was Dave Butts, one of the original hogs. The Washington Redskin offensive line led by Joe Jacoby, Russ Grimm, Mark May, Jeff Bostick. The details of his death were unknown, but he also passed away. Sad to hear. So thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to the guy and the Butts family. As we now segue from pro football to college football. And boy, was it a fascinating weekend, to say the least. Georgia and Tennessee. I didn't think that Tennessee, despite the fact that they came into this game with the high-ranked offense, 49.7 points a game, 
We've seen what Hendon Hooker has done leading the charge to become the top team in the nation heading into Athens against Georgia. And what happened there? They faced a team that I'm sure was not only hungry, but also wanted to show who is boss and who is the true number one team in the, in the nation and also the defending national champion to boot. They took the volunteer offense to the back of the woodshed to the tune where they scored six points, two field goals up until late in the fourth quarter to where they tacked on a touchdown but by then was way too late and was there any question or any doubt that Georgia was going to bring their A game to this competition or to this match? Absolutely not. The defense was stingy, physical, punched them in their mouth, suffocating. Georgia takes back their top spot, number one in the country, and the Vols get knocked down a few pegs to number five as they're out of the college football playoff rankings, if you want to call it that. And then what we saw later on in the day, whether is Clemson going to Notre Dame, and you knew Notre Dame was salivating a little bit based on what happened there last year. And Clemson, we knew that they could be picked off here based on the game at Wake where they went to overtime. I believe it was double overtime, now that I think about it, 51-45. And I understand Wake was a top 10 ranked team in the country at that time, but they had to go to the bare bones all the way to the final nub of their fingers to sweat blood tears to win that game and then to play at home against Syracuse to where they gave them four turnovers and they had to one more time blood sweat tears to overcome a poor performance and to beat Syracuse in their building and they were just ripe for the picking to where Notre Dame just took it to them to the tune of an early lead they led 28 nothing at one point and then won 35-14 So the Clemson Tigers could say bye-bye to any aspirations to making it to the college football playoff discussion. And then Alabama with LSU and Brian Kelly, yes, he couldn't get that signature win against Tennessee as Tennessee blew the doors off of them early on this year. But LSU has played very well and here it was in their building against the hated Alabama Crimson Tide. And even though Alabama had come back to tie there late, but in the overtime, after Alabama scores a touchdown and the extra point to where Brian Kelly said the hell with it. After their touchdown, we're going to go for two here. We're going to see if we can come out of here victorious. And what happened? They did so to knock Alabama all the way down to 10. LSU jumps up in the rankings to number seven, I believe. I'll take a double check at that in a minute. And you had a topsy-turvy, crazy Saturday to where you had Tennessee shown that Georgia is the class, not only the SEC, but the in the entire sport. You had Alabama get knocked down a few more pegs as they have not played well here this year, barely getting out of Texas with a win, barely beating Texas A&M, losing to Tennessee in the final seconds the way they did, and then now losing here to LSU. No way they make it into the college football playoff. And then Clemson, in just terrible fashion, them losing to where you have a lot of teams who either started off the year slowly, whether you're Oregon or just recently losing, whether you're USC or UCLA moving up in the ranks and LSU, they are ranked seventh in the nation to where as we take a look 
as to where we are into November with three weeks away from the end of the regular season. Your top four as constituted, Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, and the Horned Frogs of TCU. I'm sure somewhere LaDainian Tomlinson is smiling brightly knowing that his team, if the college football season ended today, they would be part of the Final Four when it comes to the playoff on New Year's Eve. Followed by Tennessee, who dropped from one to five. Oregon moves up to six. LSU now seventh. USC eighth. UCLA ninth. And Alabama plummets to ten. And you also have to think here too, people, that if Ohio State and Michigan go into their Saturday after Thanksgiving game, both undefeated, and chances are Ohio State, you know they're going to want to put it to the Wolverines after what happened in the big house last year to where if Michigan gets that one loss, there's going to be a faction of people, whether it's in Tennessee, Oregon, even LSU, if they continue to move up, they're going to think that they could get that fourth spot. Now, of course, TCU has to continue to win as we saw last year with Cincinnati, if they continue to win, they're going to be part of that discussion. But, Ohio State and Michigan now is at the forefront to see which team is going to go down. And chances are, and I'll talk about this on Thursday's podcast when it comes to their remaining schedule, chances are they may go into that game undefeated. So, I'm sure a lot of people will think, even with one loss, they will make it to the college football playoff, but there could be another team whether it is Oregon or even Tennessee, because they did beat Alabama earlier this year, and although they got smoked by Georgia at home, in Georgia, I should say, that people may think that if Michigan and Ohio State loses, that maybe one of those teams could leapfrog those guys to get themselves into the college football playoff. So more to discuss on that Thursday, as we'll take a look at the schedules, even CCU's schedule and see how the rest of this college football regular season will shake out. All right, now as I put on my high tops to get into the NBA, and I know a lot of this had taken place early last week, and when we talk about the one team, or I should call them the soap opera of the NBA, and even though I'm dating myself here, but once upon a time, you had those midday soap operas on the big networks, back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and I think there's still a couple around, I believe General Hospital. I don't even know if half of these are still around. The Days of Our Lives, All My Children, which was huge, and one of the biggest, highest-rated soap operas, I believe, what, Susan Lucci, for all those years that she was the bridesmaid and never the bride when it came to to winning an Emmy for her performance on that soap opera. Or The Young and the Restless, As the World Turns, all these soap operas back in the day, which I don't even know if they're still on the air. But with that being said, you might as well put the Nets, and I know in the beginning I called it as the Nets burn, and I understand it may be a bit strong, maybe as the Nets squirm, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, but the Brooklyn Nets are by far the NBA's biggest soap opera. And I know that's not going out on a limb. That's no shock. But all you got to do is just look at the past seven days to see how everything unfurled, whether it was last Tuesday with Steve Nash and the front office parting ways mutually with the coach 
And that was no surprise. We knew Steve Nash was way in over his head. This wasn't a scenario where Steve Kerr took a Splash Brother, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry team with Draymond Green and picked up where Mark Jackson left off to the tune of winning three titles in five years, making it to five straight finals, also winning a title this past year. Definitely nowhere near close to that scenario, although you had Hall of Fame talent on the roster, i.e. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. But that was a match that was not going to be made even in heaven after everything that transpired this offseason with Kevin Durant wanting his trade request and either it was going to be the coach or the GM that's got to go. But with Nash going, no shock there. But then the rumor mill starts to come about where the Nets are close to finalizing a deal with their former assistant and former disgraced Boston Celtic head coach and a one Ime Odoka. And when I heard about that, I was surprised from this regard. Well, twofold. One, that the Celtics didn't want any compensation. That just shows you how much they just want to get rid of the guy and rid of the stench that surrounded him, the team, heading into the training camp before the start of the season. And that was one where... They even looked at the Nets and said, no, you can have them. It's almost as if, I don't care if you send back a bunch of signed basketballs by Dr. J. He's your headache. He's not ours anymore. Good luck. And hopefully we beat you in head-to-head matchups or in the postseason if they meet again. And for Udoka, as we all know, very good coach, commands respect to the players. We saw what he did in his one year in Boston, even after that slow start. But now you're going to have the stigma of him. And you would think he's going to be on his best behavior. Hopefully he's going through some counseling to get himself right, to get himself together. But now you're going to have that weighing over your franchise to where once he is introduced, and I don't want to say it's a foregone conclusion or formality, but for all intents and purposes, it looks like he's going to be the guy once the suspension of Kyrie Irving is up, and I'm going to get to that, of course. But now you're going to have the specter of everything that happened in Boston over your organization here from now moving forward to where the GM, the owner, and the front office are going to have to answer, are there any rules when it comes to insubordination with any relationships with female workers? Is, I mean, you're going to have to deal with all this. Why go there? Now let's get to Kyrie. To me, you're just adding another layer to what has become an absolute circus in Brooklyn. And let's say if Adoka changes the culture and changes everything around to the tune of once he becomes coach, that they start off, I don't know, I'll just throw a record out there. They're 11-2. and All right, winning cures all, but you know that there's going to be just a hint of... What took place in Boston that's going to carry into Brooklyn? Like I said, the Celtics have said, that's your problem now. And with this media market, and granted that the Nets aren't a national team, I mean, they become a national team based on the talent and the superstar level talent that they have on the team. But we all know that this is not a big franchise. But I digress. But now you have to have that hanging over your franchise on top of what happened with Kyrie where he posted this movie about 
that was on Amazon Prime about how something with the Hebrews and the Negroes, and I haven't watched it. I haven't seen it. I don't know what type of anti-Semitic tropes that has been reported that have come from this film, so I can't base anything on what the theme or what the content is about when it comes to this film that Kyrie posted on his Instagram story. I cannot, and I'm certainly not going to critique it by any stretch of the imagination. But for Kyrie to put it out there and for him to say that he's not promoting it, and I believe I touched on this last week, come on, my guy. If you put it on your social media account, I don't care what it is, you're promoting it. That's like if I'm drinking a soft drink or a beer and I don't even tag them, but I have the can or whatever in my hand, of course, it's not promotion, but I am promoting it. Because they know that if I'm drinking it or eating it or wearing it, obviously I must like it. So therefore, I'm promoting it. And then for him to come out with the press conference where he acknowledged what he did and how, oh, it wasn't meant to come out that way, blah, 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 this, that, and the third, without apologizing, although he took ownership of it, but didn't say in any way, shape, or fashion that I'm sorry for putting that out there. I didn't want to for people to be misled or for people to think that this is what I believe in, so on and so forth. That came out after the fact that he was suspended for five games to where the front office said that he is unfit, and I'm paraphrasing, to play as a member of the Brooklyn Nets. And then we saw the Instagram post by Kyrie stating that he was sorry, he didn't mean to offend anybody, to offend the Jews, that he's learning, he's growing, etc., etc. And even though he did say that in that first press conference after not apologizing, but then now on Instagram, he did apologize. And by then, the damage was already done. And this is what happens. Unfortunately, we know Kyrie is a guy who's going to, he's a different dude. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but he's a guy that he's going to have his beliefs and he wears that close to the vest. And his authentic self, whatever that is, he's going to put that out there to the world. He's going to make note of it. And he's going to show it. And even if he just took a screenshot, and I get it that people are also going to think, oh, well, how come Jeff Bezos, who is Mr. Amazon, has this movie on his platform? I'm sure Jeff Bezos is not combing through what movies or books or content should be released or put out there. He's worried about going up in space as opposed to, oh, what film should I select to be put in our library for people to see? He doesn't care about that. We all know that. So please, if you want to put that on Jeff Bezos, and I understand he is Mr. Amazon, but he, you think he's really caring about that? And I don't like the guy. I mean, come on. Oh, I'm going, Now I'm going off the rails here when I'm talking about this. But now with Kyrie and having to deal with that and when he comes back and you still have another, what, 70 games left of this? And then you also have KD throwing his hat in the ring to see if he could buy the Commanders or be part of a group to purchase the commanders knowing that it's on sale oh what more can you say this is just a week in the life of the Brooklyn Nets what's going to happen as we get deeper into the season especially if they're not playing well I don't even know what else to add to that I I just uh, you can't make it up that's all you can say people is you can't make it up I'll get into more about the games and I know the Bucks are 9-0 and they're flying high, 
Even Cleveland, after losing their first game to Toronto, they've won eight in a row. And they look like they're going to be just, I'm not going to say unstoppable. I'm not going to go as far as that. But they look like a team that's going to be young, that's going to be hungry. Mitchell was probably the right guy to put on that team. And let's see what he could do now in a different conference, different region of the world. I understand Cleveland's not your basketball hotbed, but of course it has had success with LeBron there. And not to even throw Donovan Mitchell and LeBron James in the same sentence when it comes to talent level, but it looks like he's infused a lot of positivity and just some leadership there. So that's good for that young team to see. And again, I'll talk more about the NBA. I just wanted to touch on the Brooklyn Nets and what's gone on there and just even highlight Cleveland and what they've done even after losing their first game and how Milwaukee's the last undefeated team and it looked like they could be a team on a mission. As I mentioned last week, could they be the teams or the best team in the NBA even after five games? Considering that they had very little to no turnover on their roster this year and they're still waiting for a couple of key guys to come back. So there's that to get into. But you do have James Harden is going to be out for a month with a toe issue. So that's going to hurt the Sixers who are still trying to find their way in the Eastern Conference. So I'll get into more NBA on Thursday. And then lastly, the NHL, a few things to discuss here. One, the Bruins, they signed this kid Mitchell Miller, who I talked about last year, I believe when he was drafted. No, a couple of years ago in 2020 by the Coyotes. And how they had found, even though they drafted the kid, but they didn't sign him. Because later on, doing their homework, they found out that this kid was convicted in juvenile court because of bullying and racially abusing this kid, Isaiah Myers Crothers, who is black. And in the report, it stated that Miller was abusing this kid in second grade, going back that far. And therefore, the Coyotes, although they drafted this kid, but then they realized once they went deep, and did some due diligence on this kid. They're like, oh, there's no way we could sign this kid. Considering the climate of the country, considering everything that's gone on, and rightfully so, to where the Bruins, they said, what the hell, we'll take a flyer on it. And even though the GM Cam Neely of the Bruins said that they were aware of the incident, that it was isolated, that they knew it was going to be a little bit of a risk, but whether the commissioner who voiced his displeasure over the signing saying that it was not eligible for him to be in the NHL at this point. And even a couple of the players, key players at that, whether you're Patrice Bergeron or even Nick Foligno spoke their piece where they were disappointed knowing that, wow, that they actually went this route, that they didn't support it. But if that's what they were going to do, and then Cam Neely and company, they had to just cut bait knowing that this would have been a PR disaster for the Bruins if they did sign him. And again, he was going to play in the minors. It wasn't as if he was going to play with the Bruins right off the bat, but just knowing that he was going to be playing in the organization, even on a minor league level, and to have the scope of what took place, granted it was a while ago, I mean it was six years ago, but still, people are going to look at it, oh, give the guy a break, or oh, you know, give him a second chance. That's hard to come back from, my guys and gals, when you have a scenario where you're just spewing racial epithets at, a kid and bullying. Ugh. Unfortunately, this is the world we live in. So, you could talk about it being isolated or you could talk about, oh, it was just random or the kid, maybe he's gone to for some help or some 
mental health help, who knows, but the Bruins did the right thing. They had to come bait from this kid. There was no way that they could have this kid playing in the organization knowing that he has a lot of dirt in his past that is tough to overcome. And then what's going on with the Penguins in Pittsburgh, I don't know if it's surprising. I'm sure a lot of people would think it's a surprise here going through this early season funk, especially when you bring the triumvirate of the aging veterans of Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Chris Letang. How here, a little bit over a month into the season, and now they're losers of seven in a row. And this was something that we talked about briefly during the NHL preview to where even with bringing these guys back and seeing if they could get lightning out of a bottle, because I think, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, the championship window has closed. Can they go on a run? Can they do something special, maybe win a round or get to a conference final? Yeah, I think they can. But if they want to try to bring it back to relive some of the glory of whether it's 2009 when they beat the Red Wings or 2016 and 17 when they beat Nashville and San Jose to win back-to-back cups, I think it's a bit of a stretch. And now you can see that the Penguins are feeling it a little bit. And granted, it's still early. Not going to get too crazy about it. But knowing that the Penguins were a team that's going to be in a lot of people's radar because of these three guys, and in particular, Sidney Crosby, this is one that, who knows? Come January, watch them go on a stretch to where they're near the top of the Metropolitan Division. But because of who they are and losers of seven in a row, you got to wonder whether or not the skid's going to end soon or they're going to be just in a malaise throughout the season. So that was one thing I wanted to touch on. And speaking of players, especially one who is of the ilk of Sidney Crosby, especially when they were drafted in that same year, when you have Alexander Ovechkin, who is now the all-time goal-scoring, not leader, but for the most goals scored by one player in a franchise, goes to the grade eight Alexander Ovechkin as he eclipsed Gordie Howe 787 goals scored for the Capital franchise where Gordie Howe scored 786 for the Red Wing franchise for all those years. And now he has his sights set on 800. Gordie Howe is at 801. So he's just 14 away from tying Mr. Hockey himself and obviously 15 away from passing him. And as we talked about at the start of the season, he still has another season to go, maybe a season plus after this year to get to Wayne Gretzky who is at 894 Tops all time in NHL history. And Ovechkin, the guy's not slowing down. The guy is a machine. He has, what, seven goals so far here in this early season. And the Capitals have played 13 games. And they've been losers of four in a row. So they've been going through a tough stretch themselves. But he is not slowing down as Ovechkin is just trying to continue his assault on the goal-scoring record book. And he did so as he's all alone for the most goals scored by one player in a franchise. And I'll touch on the NHL a little bit more on Thursday as we get ready to wrap up here. As I thank you, the listener, for stopping by. That will do it for this podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. Hope it was entertaining, informative, etc. Because as you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. I'll get to that in a second. But if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate it. Just to increase the visibility so we can get more people familiar and get the word out that this podcast does exist, that I talk about all sports, not just one sport, and that I come with the passion, fire, and fury, as you heard over the past hour plus. If you want to hit me up on social media, you could do so by going to the J Reels podcast on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. 
And if you want to hit me up with an email, you could go to the jreelspodcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And then, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to the J Reels Podcast on Patreon. That's P as in Paul, A, T as in Tom, R, E, O, N as in Nancy, dot com slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth, we'll go 100% to this endeavor, the production of this podcast, the upkeep of the website, equipment, etc. Because whether you do or do not know people, once again, this is what I love to do. It's in the blood, it's in the DNA, as I like to say, sharing my thoughts opinions, analysis, critiques, praise on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the Southeast, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.